Welcome to part two of this special two-part episode of Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, featuring Dr. Barry Barish, co-recipient of the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics for the LIGO experiment. This lively discussion between Dr. Barish and Professor Keating touches on scientific leadership, academic stress, the role of mentors and managers in science, and many other topics. Welcome to Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. Discover how the world's most accomplished scientists supercharge their creativity and strengthen their most precious collaborations, and how you can too, no matter what you do. You mentioned Avi Loeb. Yeah. Okay. I think that situation is much more complicated. It's uh, don't pres- don't make him a victim because no, I'm not. I haven't read his book. I've so criticized I can, him actually. Yeah. I'll tell you my criticism. But I heard him on NPR. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he uh, basically criticized his critics, yes. which I find okay. So why is he criticizing on NPR? So no, I know. It, what did he criticize them for? Basically, not being open-minded, mm-hmm. being closed-minded scientists. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I would say the other side of the coin is we all learn in science how important it is to be right. Mm-hmm. And we learn since Newton's time that we have tried true ways to test whether something is right. Mm-hmm. And until it's right, you don't make audacious claims, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. So uh, I think his, he may be right. I don't know. I haven't read his book. I know what the thing is, but I haven't yeah. really read the book. But I think the attitude that I'm pure because I have this imagination and I'm not right. constrained like my colleagues mm-hmm. is very unhealthy. No, and I think he does himself a disservice. And I, I'm a good friend of his. I like him a lot personally. I respect him professionally. I mean, this is a person. For what it's worth, this is a person who's the chairman of the astronomy department at Harvard for the longest term ever in history. He actually has a minor role in losing the Nobel Prize because he made the announcement, helped us make the announcement that the waves of gravity have been detected at Caltech, at, at Harvard rather. But I, um, even though the work would have been done here essentially, but, um, but he does himself a disservice in two ways. And, and I have read the book and I've talked to him on the podcast and I'll send you links to all of those. But one thing is that he'll say things like in Galileo's time, they would persecute scientists and, and Bruno was burned at the stake, you know, for an idea. And, you know, but, but how much more so are we open to things like string theory, the multiverse, um, large extra dimensions, even things that are happening at Harvard, by the way, you know, Kamran Vafa, Lisa Ram, <laughs> these are all things that are happening at Harvard. So he's not criticizing, you know, people that are, that are distant to him. So he's, he's taking, he's taking, so one thing is that, you know, people say, well, I, they called Einstein crazy. You know, I get these emails every day. Professor Keating, I'm not good at math. Help me unify gravity with all the force of nature. I'll share my Nobel Prize. They called Einstein crazy. He won. Anyway, so, but just as that, you should be very careful to invoke Bruno and Galileo. And so I've told him that. The other thing, I claim that he doesn't believe it because of the following reason. Um, this object, let's just assume he's right. He claims it's 91% you know, uh, chance of, uh, 9% chance of being a fluke and 91% chance of being accurate, his hypothesis. I said, Avi, you happen to know an uh, ultra-billionaire by the name of Yuri Milner, who's funded the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative that you are then involved with sending spacecraft using maybe light sail-type propulsion to another star system, Proxima Centauri B. 
in the span of Yuri Milner's lifetime, 30, 40, 50. I hope he lives and bees as well. But, um, but Avi, you think this object just came through is unequivocally almost evident. Why don't you, instead of sending it to Proxima Centauri B, why don't you send a satellite, get him to, you know, call up Elon Musk and get a rocket out to Oumuamua while it's still relatively close by. I mean, it's only, you know, it's only traveling at the speed of the Saturn V, you know, plus or minus something. Um, and he said, no, no, we're not going to do that because, um, because of the next generation of optical telescopes will observe many of these objects. And Vera Rubin Observatory, which used to be called the LSST, that's going to come online, the, the giant Magellan telescope, the 30-meter um, the, uh, telescope that you guys in Caltech are about. Um, so we'll discover many of these, so it won't be the last one. I said, you know, I've heard that before. You know, like, like oh, let's just push. So I said, Avi, do you really believe it? Because it seems to me if I was not only confident of my science, but I was being assailed from all directions by these, by these detractors, these competitors, these, these petty kind of arguments that you're hearing in magazines all around the world, I would do, stop at nothing. And it would drive me crazy. And so, Avi, I said, I don't know if you really believe it. And he said, well, let's, no, I'm right. We're going to see it in five years. You'll ne- everyone will know I'm right in five years. I can wait five years. So, you know, that, so th- these are just individual scientists. But, but the notion of, of competition, you know, I, I want to ask you a question. When, um, uh, you know, let's say, let's say the, the Americans landed on the moon. And uh, you remember this. You were alive. I, I wasn't. But, you know, and then Neil Armstrong steps out. And, and he's on top of a Soviet flag. You know, I mean, what, why do we go to the moon? Do you remember the plaque that Nixon signed on, on the lunar lander, the Eagle? It said, we came in peace for all mankind, which is exactly the credo almost of, of Alfred Nobel's medallion, right? It's for the benefit of all mankind. So um, in that sense, we, we never went back to the moon. Like, we still haven't gone back to the moon, right? So in what sense was it for the benefit of all mankind? No, a lot of it was a competition. It's just, and it was scientific. There were a lot of scientists. You just talked to it. Here's yeah. a piece of the moon. Where is it? There it is. Yeah. There's a piece of the moon, right? Yeah. So we do things as scientists, and I think they're not always, um, you know, I, I would say I now agree with you, but I didn't agree with you. In other words, competition um, I might just be part of my personality. Like I do like martial arts and I, I love like, you know, contact and, and just kind of testing myself in some sense. And maybe, you know, kind of the, the infinite game of science. I didn't, I didn't appreciate it as much. Like, do you take satisfaction? Forget about Caltech. Let's say, you know, someone in the university of Nebraska, Omaha, right. Or, or whatever. And they discover magnetic monopoles. Like you would, you'd be, delighted by it or whatever but like if you're building the monopole detector wouldn't you feel a little bit of a disappointment or a loss oh i went through that i know (laughs) (laughs) the valentine's day which is coming up yeah the valentine's day event and uh uh, well you know that story i think i told you that story so uh and cabrera is kind of a friend and i've known him and i respect him a lot but I had convinced myself that uh, this Parker bound was important. Uh, that there, if there was too many monopoles, they'd short out the magnetic fields. Mm-hmm. But since there are magnetic fields, there can only be so many. That's basically the Parker right. bound. And that's what drove us to make such a huge detector to take to... It was exactly the same time scale as Cabrera. Mm-hmm. So when he came out with this event, and it certainly looked incredibly convincing... I was uh, 
confused first because I really convinced myself, uh, upset because we are investing a lot in a huge detector. And this was a much more elegant technique if you could see current in a loop, right? You know, instead of just mm-hmm. indirectly do mm-hmm. it. So yeah, I was I was I was upset, uh, and uh, it wasn't so much. See, I'm not sure for myself. It didn't feel like I lost the competition mm-hmm. as much as I got outsmarted. <laughs> uh, that somehow I convinced well, myself to thing? go down a, a path, mm-hmm. but it was, wasn't the right path. It mm-hmm. turned out. He was wrong, right. but it wasn't the right path. So, but there is a judgment in there of yourself. I don't know how serious you're being, but but that's a negative assignment of your of your capabilities as a scientist. Which, by the way, I think we identify a lot of who we are. If somebody wakes me up in the middle of the night, and I think I might have mentioned this here, you probably know it. The word scientist in Russian means a person who was taught. It probably means a man who was taught, but let's just say it means one who was taught literally. So it means to me that like our identity is a teacher as a scientist. And we also have an obligation to teach others. That's supposed to be red. Uh, the red on the camera? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fine. That's, okay. When it goes off, it's, it's bad. <laughs> uh, when the red light dies, then, then we're in okay. trouble. Uh, that already happened. But um, So in other words, your identity should not be wrapped up, but it was a little bit, and you got a little taste of it. And let me ask you another question. Let's say CMS beat Atlas by a year and a half. It was just on a slam dunk. I'm not saying, I don't even know if it's physically possible, but let's just say they did. How do you think the people on Atlas would have felt? Uh, we know funding is, is a conserved quantity, even if science is an infinite game. So, you know, there are extra scientific pressures that scientists feel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, those is I, and I'm not oblivious to any of that. I mean, yeah. in different degrees, I've felt that at different times in, in my life. Neutrino oscillations, was, uh, mm-hmm. which we saw in the Grand Sasso. We didn't have the ideal detector for it, but right. the, the, the Japanese clearly uh, did a better experiment, but they also tried to preempt us. I mean, it's clear. Um, you don't know that history, but, the, the, uh, but I know how it felt inside. We had debates in our own group whether to announce gravitational waves. I was on the side not not gravitational waves, yeah, neutrino oscillations right. from atmospheric neutrinos. I was on the side that we our data wasn't good enough. Mm. And I don't know if you know him, Giorgio Giacomelli was uh, one of the senior people with me who was adamant that we had to mm. announce it. This is before the Japanese announced <laughs> it. And uh, he could basically got voted down <laughs> and played conservative. And then they announced it. Uh, but uh, so our data ended up being confirmatory, but our data wasn't as good as theirs anyway. I mean, ideally, I and think... And I know how it made me feel that we could have... You could have. You know, was I the bad guy? In Because uh, we were earlier than they, but... Right. Because we went for a different reason that was to look for monopoles, but it was a neutrino detector at the same time. Yes, and there's something, and I, I think it's okay, and it's it's just interesting to me to go from, you know, I kind of feel like the born again people must feel, you know, like it was so important for me for multiple multitude of reasons to win a Nobel Prize, and now I really I don't think about it really as much, and and part of it is, you know, is the it's just it's it's it's, it's as you said you know last time we spoke. There's so much luck involved with it. And by definition, scientists should be very wary of luck. Although, didn't Niels Bohr have like a horseshoe in his office that he hung 
upside down. And he said, like, it works even if you don't believe it. <laughs> but, uh, but I want to get to, to uh, these topics that involve uh, things other than the Nobel Prize and, and, and things like that, because I think those are the reasons that we became scientists. It, it is, uh, you know, in, in, we should be scientists, rather. And the question is, um, when you see a result, and I, I had this happen with bison. So we made this discovery. It was on the, literally on the front page of the New York Times. Um, we've now gone into a new era, which didn't exist 100 years ago, 80 or 50, 30 years ago, where we have press conferences. And you guys had a press conference with, with, with many, many of my friends. And, 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 of course, what do you make of that, um, number one? And what do you do in a case like Bicep, where the public is still left? I meet people all the time. You guys, you guys designed the experiment that showed the Big Bang happened or whatever. They never find out about it because it's printed on page B seventy three of the of the you know of the Saturday morning edition that nobody reads. <laughs> so yeah, so first I, press conferences. What's yeah, your feeling about that? I, I don't. I don't. I have a. I'm from an old school or idea, which is the most important people to try. Most important. Uh, the most important thing in proving that your science is right is to have it judged by your fellow scientists. So what I don't like is going to the press before you. Uh, this thing is really not a short battery. Wow, this is really cool. They must have a stock in Duracell company or something. Do you have more batteries? Yeah, I have, have 50 batteries here. Yeah, No, I brought, I brought a bunch because I was afraid this would happen. I could plug it in, but eh, that's okay. I'll just plug it into another battery. As long as we got these recordings, I'll upload those anyway. These things are hot. Wow, this thing uses a lot of waste a lot of energy. So we probably only get 20 minutes per each one of these. And then eventually I'm gonna run it. Well, you have to go with in a little bit anyway. But um, so we were talking about press conferences. Oh, we have we have time. And, yeah, let me uh, just I want to make sure I don't yeah. take up too much of your time. But uh, but this is fun. I think we're getting a lot of good, good neat material for the for the podcast as well. You should start a podcast. Uh, no. <laughs> you don't have enough to do. Your social uh, calendars. And I I get asked to go on a lot of these things, but I only do it for people like you or oh, or the other Brian because you're scientists. <laughs> yeah. The, you. means the other ones, uh, I I just turn down. I don't. Oh, well, that a means a lot to me, and B. <laughs> Uh, and that makes me even more appreciative. I'm trying to get Andrea Gez to come on the podcast. I asked Donna Strickland, mm -hmm. and she politely says she doesn't go on any podcast. I asked Frances Arnold, and she said she no longer goes on. She was very polite, but she never goes on podcasts anymore. And so I'm trying to get Andrea Gez to go on, who just went on Lawrence Krauss's podcast, who played a not insignificant role in the announcement of LIGO. And maybe we can resume our discussion of the press conferences. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to try some of this cheese. Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, press conferences. Mm -hmm. So, the way, so let me start with what I think is important in doing science. We have to be ourselves in some form, follow the scientific method. Mm -hmm. That's so that we come out, and that's kind of the problem we have with the public. They don't, they don't know the scientific method, which is why the fake news and everything is <laughs> such a big problem. Uh, but, for us, we do know the scientific method. We don't do it like Newton did in steps, but we know the scientific method. I think the most important 
uh, check. And to me, it's, it's, it's crucial because we're all human and fallible is our colleagues. So I uh, have always felt going to news conferences is the, what you do to, as the first thing is bad. Okay. Now people have fixed that because they basically now have been able to coordinate it with journals who come out the same day. Our news conference was the same day as the FISREV letter. It doesn't really fix it because the problem is that uh, assigned reviewers for an article are not necessarily the critics that you need in complex experimental physics. And uh, so the fact that uh, you can do an experiment, the classic one that I have have watched very closely because I was involved in Italy was the measurement that neutrinos move faster than this, go faster the than the opera. speed of light. Yeah, the opera. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, that followed the rules. The rules at CERN were you had to give a seminar at CERN and you had to expose it to the CERN management before it was published and it was refereed. But it basically hit the New York Times and everywhere else because, you know, going yeah. faster than the speed of light is, and was wrong. And it was wrong, and it was wrong in an embarrassingly way because it was bad experimentation. It was a blunder, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and of course, you know, the guys suffered that were in charge and everything. But I think in terms of what we're talking about, I think it would be, I wish there was more scientific... Um, Criticism is the wrong word, but scientific exposure mm-hmm. before you go to the public. I don't think it's healthy. Yeah. I know astronomers all the time announce as soon as they see something. Right. I come from a physics background, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think it helps science to be to say something. It's fine for New York Times doesn't mind. They'll write an article and then a year later say it was wrong. But for science, I think it's wrong to not somehow have built in the system that we at least do our best job of validating or not yeah. the science before it goes public in an announcement. That's not the way it's working, but that's my own no, feeling. No, I think, I think it's a big, again. So for that reason, I think I mentioned to you, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that was the reason why when we made the announcement for LIGO, I was not at the press conference. I went to CERN, gave a simultaneous. Oh, oh Did you know okay. that? No, I know that. So there was a simultaneous yeah. seminar, which you can find on the CERN website, yeah. which was the announcement exactly at the same time <laughs> as the announcement in Washington, because I I thought it was most, more important to present it to our scientific colleagues. Yeah. When I, when I think about what could be done better, I think we're almost victims of our own success. I don't know of too many things. I guess it happens in the soft sciences or in biology, I guess. There's reports all the time that, you know, p-hacking and, and all sorts of things that take place. But in the hard sciences, all I know is physics. I'll say I don't think I've seen something that was unethical in my career, such as it is, you know, 30 years or so in physics. <clears throat> However, I think we might be kind of inuring ourselves to the notion that because we're not ever unethical, that we are acting, you know, completely in, in a, I'll say, kosher yeah. format. And, and, and and I wonder, you know, is there a way to do it? So I propose kind of a joke, maybe in the book, maybe not. But, but you know, I'm saying, like, you have some budget for public relations. You have to, you know, because the public deserves to know. They're paying oh, our salary, right? Absolutely. So, but you should also have a budget for the, you know, you should have an option. You should hedge. What if you're wrong? So have some budget. 
and I don't know how what form that should take. Maybe it would take a full page ad in the New York Times. Like if you're published in the New York Times, like and it's on the front page, yeah, okay. So you better be. It will make you at least wary. I don't think it'll like oh now opera will get scooped by you know by Sonata or some other experiment. No, it'll it'll make you very cautious and it'll make you you know have to have some skin in the game if you're wrong. Because right now it seems to me almost like a ratchet. Like they could only succeed. If you don't announce it, our, part of our worry is Planck is going to scoop us. They're going to announce they saw BMOs because George of Stadio and others had said we are going to have the capability to detect the BMOs if they're at the level that we eventually claimed we detected, which was later retracted. So, you know, maybe having a budget or having some training. By the way, is there training separate from LIGO, but just like within Caltech or are there, you know, do we ever learn like ethical best practices? No, uh, that's a bug. It's too bad. We, we don't. Other professions learn and study yeah. ethics, and that becomes a, a really important thing. My wife's a psychologist. Oh, and, right. Okay. And mm-hmm. uh, ethics <laughs> is is very important. It's not just in psychology. It's important. Yeah. But scientists, somehow we ignore it. We don't teach it. We think uh, it's less important, right, than learning quantum mechanics. And, yeah. I, and I feel like... And that's because we think we don't cheat and so forth, I guess. Right. I don't know. But, uh, um but ethics is important, and we ignore it as scientists, yeah. and I think it's, that's bad. In terms of this other thing, I don't have a solution, but I don't like it. Uh, I think somehow we should accreditate or validate or whatever you want to call it as scientists, scientific discoveries as well as we can mm-hmm. before we expose it to the world, mm-hmm. uh, the public. I think it's almost... A responsibility. I mean, maybe they don't. It doesn't matter to most people in the streets if neutrinos actually don't go faster than the speed of light. But in principle, things that you discover scientifically can matter right. to to the public. And being wrong, uh, and why scientists have credit is because we're mostly right. We do have yeah. peer review, which has its flaws, flaws but yeah. but helps. But peer review doesn't work very well to to judge CMB experiments or LIGO, it's, you know, you have a couple of reviewers that uh, aren't as the people who really know the stuff. Yeah. Or, I've been on nature discovery paper review, like re- reviewers of nature papers that announced discovery of a major scientific event, science. I was the only, I was the only, you know, professor. I was the only like, you know, not postdoc or whatever, or maybe on, I've been on panels. I've been on NSF panels where I was the only professor in other words, the professors couldn't be bothered to go to NSF and, and deal with it because they're too busy. Well, you know, I happen to have a bunch of kids and a bunch of grad students and a bunch of other activities, you know, but I feel that is, we have a privilege as scientists. It's really the best job in the world. I mean, don't you think? I mean, absolutely. people like us. Absolutely. And so, but we act like, you know, because we don't get paid as much and because we have to, you know, sometimes be beholden to, to funding agencies and the government, political cycles and whims. That, you know, we have it bad, but I don't think we, I think we've had it so good for so long, especially in the United States, that we don't realize how bad it can get. And I I do hope that we, you know, it would be a dream if we could look to some people in society and say, these are the truth keepers. There's a phrase that science should be like merchants of truth. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think, I think that's idealistic, but something to aspire to. Yeah, that's probably the right attitude. Is something to aspire to. I don't know how to make a set of rules. Yeah, but I think we're on the edge when we go and announce our discoveries to the press so quickly. Yeah, I, I think it it's uh, something I don't like. Uh, the press will swallow it and they'll print it. Yeah, 
uh, if you're reputable scientists. Uh, as I said, that's why I felt it more important at the time we announced it to give the seminar, the one seminar that mm -hmm. was given right. that time was at CERN. I want to ask you something we had when we first met a couple of years ago over dinner. I asked you, Barry, you know, one of the things I look up to, you know, tongue in cheek, you know, people would say, oh, Barry, he won the Nobel Prize for project management, you know, and, and in addition to your science, like you had this incredible, you know, gift for management. I said, Barry, I'm helping to run this hundred million dollar project called the Simons Observatory. Give me the hacks. Give me the tip. And you were like, Shut up. you know, there's no tip. There's no book. You said there is not one book, not one book I can give you there. There, you know, there's resources. So I want to talk in our remaining time that we have together, um, it, you know, about, about management and maybe, um, and not make it dry, but, but talk about what, what attracts you, what made you good at it, and, and not the hacks and trips, tricks, because now I know they're not possible, but, but how, do you, how do you maintain the kind of capability and passion, curiosity, or what have you, about, you know, doing something that's not 100% the science that you got into this field to do? Uh, I, I think I, I grew into it, so it, it isn't like all of a sudden I had to learn how to run some, some big thing so that, that there was no magic there. Um, I uh, was curious enough at, at the time when, let's say, it became, when it, there became elements of management in the science I was doing and not just a bunch of scientific colleagues at some point it became a little bigger and I think I, I mentioned to you that then I basically decided I'd be a student of project management mm -hmm. and so I, I basically learned what they do um, <laughs> I understand pretty much how to go about building a bridge or something and um, the but it was obvious to me that that's not really the way to the best way to approach a complex science project from, from the beginning because basically I started early enough where you, we didn't have a huge management system like, like now. The problem is we backed into that being, for example, I don't know about uh, probably in NASA, uh, not NSF, but in DOE certainly the, the levels now are set up where it's almost a professional management, which I think is the wrong uh, wrong thing for most of what we build because we're not building bridges. And so uh, I uh, have always felt, I mean, I made the simple analogy, I may have made it to you before, that when you build a bridge, there's all these kind of, an organization has to be hierarchical, that a person at each level can only have so many people that report to them. There's all a bunch of rules. Right? And they, they work in building a bridge, but they're not necessarily the rules that, uh, that we work by to do science. And the simplest way to see that is that a physics department, like at UCSD, uh, is exactly the opposite kind of management. The, the department chair manages uh, a totally non-hierarchical organization where it's a bunch of parallel things going on. Now, it's a little easier to do that because the things are complementary and they're different kinds of physics but they don't depend on each other very much, so they don't interrelate. So you're able to do that. But it says that the, to me that the style that succeeds at doing physics is not a hierarchical style. It's a, it, it's a totally non-hierarchical style. So how do you actually 
do the best of both. And uh, somehow that uh, is recognizing that is the an important element for me. So what I've always done was adapt the things that matter the most from what is done formally in project management. If you look at a, a diagram of how LIGO was managed, it won't look like a hierarchical thing. It's kind of a, a hybrid funny thing. Uh, but the important things are how do you control the uh, costs? Right, costs before. Well, it, it, there are tricks to controlling the cost. First, you need the discipline that comes with how costing is done when you build a bridge, when you don't, can't, don't easily get more money for it, so you know what to do. Uh, and that has a lot of elements in it in terms of, uh, I don't know, um, actually uh, schemes of doing the budgeting and assigning them at certain levels and all this kind of formality. That's okay. That allows you to do the accounting. Uh, but the responsibility for the budget levels is where, th where things matter. Mm -hmm. And somehow you can't do it without scientists making the crucial decisions. Where do you violate or spend more money or don't because mm -hmm. it matters for, for science. So uh, for me, it's, I, I hate to say it, but it's more of an art than a, <laughs> than a it's an art, but an educated art, knowing what you, for me personally, I know how to do the hierarchical organization. I know how to do uh, cost controls. I know how to do change control where we change things. And I know how important it is on the other side to be able to develop and not build the thing that you talked about because we don't, we're building a one of a kind something. And if it looks exactly like what you said 10 years before or whenever you started, it's probably pretty stupid and outdated <laughs> right. because technologies change, ideas change, and so forth. So how do you incorporate that as you go, and even encourage it as you go along without causing costs to go up? And so it requires uh, a hybrid of the two that there's no magic formula for. I mean, we developed it for something like, like, like LIGO or mm -hmm. the experiment I did in Italy or the ILC that, that basically has the most important positions except for professional engineering done by uh, scientists. I'll give you a techno an example. Mm -hmm. In most, if you build a bridge, probably if you talk to somebody that's built a bridge or a complicated thing, a tank or something, mm -hmm. that the most important job technically is the interfaces. That somebody builds this, somebody builds that, and you put it together. But controlling, yeah. Yeah, controlling the interfaces. And so they have, there's a whole profession of systems engineering. And if you look at kind of the hierarchy and engineering for building things, those are the guys that are at the top of the pile, the smart guys are systems <laughs> engineers. And they do, they basically do these interface doc, doc, uh, doc, documents that, uh, bring the dimensions together and things together one by one. Uh, that's just not the problem in building something like LIGO. Interfaces is not the problem in building the neutrino experiment at Fermilab. It's just not. 
the the problem is that you have somebody at uh, UCSD that builds this mm -hmm. and somebody that builds something else, and these things are supposed to work together. Right. One of them are these detectors, there's the cryogenics or whatever. And DAX. Somehow, how, uh, yeah, or DAX and they need the right thing. So you need to actually have this stuff work together. And the most important technical position in LIGO was... Uh, not, uh, was the person who did the, uh, not the interfaces, but the system engineering, meaning the integration, how you integrated the parts together. And that turned out to be, for us, <coughs> somebody named Albert Lazzarini, who's now an assistant director, but he was, uh, I don't know if you know him. I know the name, yeah. He was a, a nuclear physicist trained at MIT, uh, went to... University of Washington as a postdoc, had too many kids, and then went into industry. And he learned how to be a systems engineer in mm. industry, but his background was in physics. physics. The first, after, when I took over LIGO, the, after getting, talking my colleague Gary Sanders into coming and joining me, the first person I wanted to hire was the person that was to integrate this thing together. Mm -hmm. And so I went to JPL and I went to different places and I get these interface people that would do these interface things. And finally, I, I had a name of somebody and I called um, this guy. I don't remember his name, but Albert does on the East Coast and asked him about somebody. And he asked me what I'm looking for, <laughs> which I should have been smart enough to tell him what I was looking right. for. But he asked me what I was looking for, and I described what I just told you. I want somebody that understands as well as the person responsible for two things and make sure they sing together and with some examples of yeah. where that matters in LIGO. The, the, um, and uh, he said, well, I know the right guy for you, but he's not available. So he gave me the name. That was Albert, who I <laughs> called. <laughs> And said, you're not available, but let me tempt you. Right. And uh, and then I talked him into coming into LIGO. And that was the, after Gary, he was the person that I hired. But it's a philosophy that you're putting these pieces together. There's no magic formula. I think yeah. the leadership has to be scientists. If you're doing it, something that isn't just putting a lot of pieces together and yeah. making it very technical, it, it's really a job that has to be done by experimental physicists with a lot of engineering. Uh, I, I, I think I sent you this IEEE yeah, link. Yeah, from the other night. Okay, yeah. so mm -hmm. we've now got the reputation of being, uh, uh, having really super engineering on LIGO. Okay, we get this award. Yeah. I, ha I also, from the IEEE. You're the from the IEEE. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah, a pretty society. good statement. <laughs> Uh, that we're, I may have mentioned to you that we're writing a history of LIGO. Yeah, okay. Ray told me to, yeah. Yeah, so in doing that, I interviewed Jay Marks. I don't know if you know Jay Marks. Again, I know the name, but... Jay Marks was a particle physicist oh, right. who uh, was the, the uh, at Berkeley, he's, he designed and built the um, photon machine on, uh, up at the lab. I forget the name of it. And he built the STAR experiment at Rick, and he has a long history in basically particle physics. He served on some of our LIGO reviews early, and he was very insightful, mm -hmm. and I knew him. And so when I went to do the ILC, uh, 
rather than than uh, I mean, what happened is the natural person to take over internally would have been Stan Whitcomb, who had been with LIGO right. a long time. And uh, but we did a search, and I suggested Jay, and and Jay came. So he was the director of LIGO during the time I was doing the ILC, and. We're doing these interviews now, so I interviewed him, and I one of the questions I didn't make up the questions. One of the others made up the questions, but one of the things, one of the questions we asked is, "What surprised you the most during the time you were there?" And he said, "The biggest surprise to him was the level and the quality of the engineering." In like that was beyond anything he'd seen, even though he was at National yeah, Labs. Yeah, right. And uh, I think that's true because not only did we get attract engineers, but these were engineers that were at the forefront and were attracted to a, a real physics experiment right. to, to do. And uh, and some are on, on the border between engineering and physics. But I think the the uh, team of of engineers didn't ever feel in LIGO inferior t- to the physicists, even though I told you scientists have to be in all these crucial right. uh, places. And the person who did the cost schedule was a physicist mm-hmm. uh, who basically had built things and so forth, but had learned how to do a cost schedule. And I, uh, so some of it's recruiting and finding the right people. Yeah. Uh, so this was Phil Linquist. He had come from JLab. Mm-hmm. and was a trained physicist, but as they had to start doing budgets and stuff, he had learned how to do that. And I had met him in some place, I don't know, and I recruited him. So he was our cost schedule person, but he had the advantage that that he could talk one-on-one with any of the people responsible for mm-hmm. budget items and whether they're running over or late or this or that, they were being monitored. So I don't know. Um, there's there's no I think it's more leading than managing mm-hmm. and, and maybe enough insight to know all the sides of it and so I cared enough to learn all the pieces you want but I yeah. think it's more leading than managing I think that <clears throat> comes back to and very nicely uh, where we started which is with curiosity and you know if you hadn't been really curious about the project process the way that you you know come to science, uh, perhaps you were the only person that could fill that that role at the time. I mean, obviously people have different needs. I remember Ray Rice when I met him ten years ago at MIT giving a colloquium there, and he said there's only a couple of people that can understand all of LIGO from soup to nuts, and he's like you. <laughs> he didn't even mention himself because I said it must be you. And he's like no, not me. But I think he mentioned some of the people you just mentioned, and that they could not come from a completely different background. It's not just like, oh, you're a physicist, so you know laser interferometry and CMB. And no, it's it's very different skill sets, but there is one unifying commonality. And I think that is a passion to understand, be curious, to learn, be humble. And and that's the thing I think we're, you know, we're trying to hire a big manager position on the Simons Observatory. And, you know, we put out an ad and we got a lot of people and some of the people we got are just so off the charts, and and you're like, well, why are you want to, you know, why do you want to work for a team like us? But but the real reality is that they're very passionate. They're very, and I'll let you know, I'll keep you posted. Maybe I'll pick your brain a little bit, and we get the resumes in. But uh, 
But the, but the point is, you know, what I'm looking for is not like, how did you steer the ship when everything was fine? Like, it's almost a completely different thing in your past projects where you ran some huge thing and, you know, people that I would knock your socks off. Uh, I won't tell you because you might steal them. But, uh, but, the, but these people, you know, they all share that trait. You know, they want to know the answer to the, you know, it's not about money. Of course, money plays a role. But, uh, but they well, really- that's great, and you can do well, I think. And unfortunately, in some of the areas, I don't know about NASA so much, but I think it's the same problem as uh, DOE, which has become so conscious of the formalities that they want professional managers. And professional managers can't do forefront science. I just think it's a different problem. It's not good for the managers either because they come into this non-hierarchical, a-hierarchical structure with people that are smart. Um, I'm not going to say scientists are smarter than managers, but they'll say, you know, here's how, you know, this top-down hierarchical. No, it's not going to work when, you know, everybody's a chair, you know, everybody's a name chair, <laughs> whatever. And uh, so so you have to maybe forget what you know. And, and I guess, you know, I guess you're right. It would probably be hard to teach, you know, a manager – all the science that he or she might need to know. But so that's why physicists can become managers. It's, it's probably a little bit harder for a manager to become a physicist, although yeah. I'm sure it can happen. So um, in the last couple of minutes, are there other topics that we should discuss or can I get a tour of the Nobel uh, memorabilia or do you have other things oh, you want to talk about? <laughs> I will. I'll show you. You want to go grab? I'm not going to show you the metal. Okay, fine. Because I don't know where it is. Yeah, to be <laughs> that's right. Well, you have to keep it in some safe or nah, something. I know. Uh, All right, I'll wait so here. I, but I'll I, but it. no, but I okay. do have some. I'll show you the plaque. Instead. Okay. All right. Have you seen the? Plaque? I haven't seen the plaque. They're one of a kind. I want to so see it. I'll, I'll bring. Them. I want to see it. I'll it's enjoy some more cheese. Thanks for listening to part two of this special two-part episode of Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, featuring Barry Barish and Brian Keating. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. And also subscribe to our original podcast, Into the Impossible, available here too. Please support this inspirational podcast by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. Purchase a copy of the book, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner, on Amazon to read or listen to via Audible. Follow Professor Keating on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R Brian Keating. For exclusive content and his informative newsletter, sign up for Brian's email list at briankeating.com. <laughs>